Well, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn again to the book of Hosea. And um, again, the, the text in your bulletin, all of that is not going to correspond right now. We, we had someone who was going to speak today that we were excited to introduce the congregation to. Uh, if you just came in late, I'll let you know that I am not Jacob. Um, Jacob's grandfather passed away on, I think it was Wednesday. He's gone to New York to attend a funeral this weekend. And so we will just continue in, in Hosea. And I look forward to hearing from Jacob on another occasion. But the passages that we'll use will be displayed on the wall and, of course, on the PowerPoint for those who are watching online. But for now, six weeks we've been looking at the prophet Hosea, a prophet of doom, one who was called to bring hard news, what sounded like really bad news, to the people of Israel in the 8th century B.C., and one might say, well, why look at an Old Testament prophet? As a church, we believe that the Word of God, Old Testament and New, is to be understood and applied to the people of God. So in these weeks, we've been doing the hard work of going through the context of the 8th century and seeking to rightly and apply it to our understanding. And the conclusion that hopefully you see and hear each week is that Hosea the prophet was all about the gospel that would come true in the person and in the work of Jesus. But each week we've seen that it's through the badness of the bad news that the goodness of that gospel news is made sweet to us. And so Hosea the prophet has spoken some hard words, disturbing words, words sometimes that are... R rated, rated R, and it's graphic imagery that depicts the sin of God's people. And he likes and likens it to a promiscuous woman, to an unfaithful wife, to a prostitute given to adultery, and he parallels that to Israel's idolatry. And so that is the context each week, and it's a bit sobering. If you think it's sobering to hear that each week, imagine being the one up front saying it each week. But it is intended by the prophet Hosea, and ultimately by the Lord, to shake and rattle us, to disturb us, and it demands our attention because it's so stark to our ears. So with that in mind, give your attention to Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Building upon all that he said in the first five chapters. And once again, you will, you will feel this back and forth tension where he's tough, but then he's tender. And he's back and forth, almost like a boxer throwing tough and then tender in a rhythm of sorts that is intended for the people's good. Give your attention to Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Come. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will restore us, that we may live in His presence. Let us know the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. 
He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of evildoers, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. I have seen a horrible thing in Israel. There, Ephraim is given to prostitution. Israel is defiled. Let's pray that the Lord would bless our understanding of His Word. Lord, we pray for You to teach us truth this morning. Even when it involves hearing bad news about ourselves. But Lord, may it be in order to hear and to know the good news that is for us in Christ Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's that time of year. It's fall. And it felt like fall this morning. I think it was 41 degrees when I awakened. And with the fall come those great events and activities, some of them in the life of the church, like the barbecue hymn sing and and other things in the lives of families that you may enjoy. One of those is apple picking. Now, I don't know if you've been an apple picker who goes you know, up into the mountains for a half a day and enjoys picking apples, but we did this with our children when they were younger. And I have this memory. This would be a Hamilton memory, who's my oldest son. But we went to the apple farm, and you walk out, to the orchard, and there are all these trees covered with apples, but then also on the ground within the reach of a toddler or of a little child are apples on the ground. And which is easier for a child to get? The apples on the ground. And so apple after apple after apple, you've probably had the same experience. Child goes and grabs what looks to be a perfectly good apple on the ground, only to what? Pick it up turn it over, and it's ruined. It has worms, it has ants, it has bugs, it's rotten. But that child will fall for it almost every time. That apple looks good on the top. It's the bottom when it's taken over and seen for what it is that you see what? All the apples on the ground pretty much are all ruined. There are apples in the tree that may be good, but all the apples on the ground are somehow ruined, right? Well, that is my picture 
of this 8th century Israel. Ephraim, Israel is called in the passage. That was the name of the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. And so Ephraim is used interchangeably as Israel. That's why that word is in there so frequently. But Israel is ruined. There may be aspects to Israel where they think they look good, like the surface of the apple. They still have worship. They still participate in sacrifices. So internally, they could justify themselves. We're the people of God. We're God's covenant people. We're okay. We're doing all right. But the message of the 8th century prophet Hosea is, no, 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 no. You are a ruined people. And that's the hard and uncomfortable word for Hosea to speak to them. And even this morning, for me to speak to myself and to all of you. That is that Israel is spiritually rotten from stem to core. It is thorough. Hosea has gone from talking of the people, and then you'll remember he talked about the priests. The people are ruined. The priests are corrupt. And then last week in chapter 5, he included the royal house. And the royal house was the administration of Israel. So from stem to core, the whole apple, Hosea is saying, is ruined. In verse 4 of chapter 5, he had said, A spirit of prostitution is in the hearts of my people. And that they had given themselves to idols. Now just to put all this together, because this is week 6, But what if we strung together all the comments that Hosea has made of the people of God? What would those comments sound like? Well, here's what it is. God's people are like a promiscuous woman. They are adulterers. They are people of unfaithfulness. They are cursing, lying murderers. They are idolaters. They are stubborn heifers. They are lying cheats who move sacred boundary stones. That's what we call strong language, right? And if you just hear it as an insult, you'd be missing the point. Remember, Hosea is seeking to to function almost like a mirror to give them self-evaluation of who they are, how they have broken covenant. And that's exactly what he says in verse 7 of chapter 6. They are covenant breakers. And then there's the phrase that says, like Adam. Like Adam, they are covenant breakers. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's divided opinion about this, actually. Adam, of course, is the first person in the Bible, that first created man. But it literally says, as at Adam. And Adam, or Adam, was a place. And it was a place that had been known for wickedness. So really, either statement that he's making is precisely true and making of the same point. Unfaithfulness has characterized God's special covenant people. Then he says in verses 8 and 9 that these people are characterized by injustice and wickedness. And he references bloodshed and that the priests are murderers. They've cared nothing about life and the well-being of their sheep. And then in verse 10 of chapter 6, he concludes concludes it all and says, Israel, 
My people, my covenant people, are defiled. That is to say, they are, they are ruined. Every apple on the ground is ruined. You turn every apple over and you find the same conclusion. The heart of men, the heart of women, the heart of children, God's covenant people are defiled. They're ruined. They're ceremonially unclean. They are to be rejected. All that language is synonymous. It's the same as saying they are ruined from stem to core. Then he gives a specific comment in verse 4. And really the entire sermon is built about verse 4 and and verse 6. But he, he describes his people there in these words. What can I do with you, Ephraim, my covenant people? What can I do with you, Judah, the southern kingdom people? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. All right, what does he mean by this? What is this imagery meant to communicate? Well, some of you have memories like I do. Maybe you had a a sports event on a Saturday morning in the fall. Um, I've taken kids to soccer games, baseball games. I had my own football practice back in the day. And what happens if you go out in the morning, but the dew on the grass is soaking wet? If you kick a soccer ball on it, you put a baseball on it, it's just soaking wet. And I can remember going out to play as a child, and uh, my parents say, no, don't, don't go out there, it's, it's wet. There's dew all over the ground. You're going to track grass back into the house, right? But I want to go play. And dad or mom would say something like, just give it a little bit. The sun is going to burn off the dew. Trust me, just give it a little bit of time and the dew will be gone, right? You know this from cutting grass on your, on your mornings. Cut too early, dew everywhere. But listen, just give it a little bit of time and the heat of the sun will see that disappear. That is the imagery that the author, that Hosea is using to communicate your love for the Lord. Just give it a little bit of time. It's not going to last. It's going to disappear quickly when the heat of the day rises. That's a profound statement about the unfaithfulness of a people. A short-lived little misty love, you could call it. And he's going to contrast it at the end with the deep, showering love of God. We have the contrast and the judgment, the indictment here of two very different kinds of love. The love of God versus the love of man. And he says, you have been characterized by misty love that will not last. It'll be gone pretty soon. Now, speaking that message to you, and having spoken that message as a minister to myself, my family, uh, for the days of my life, here's what I know to be true. Sometimes the hardest part in believing that statement about us, that we too are ruined, that we too are sinful. In my own life, what made it hardest for me to believe that, first was my own sin, but second was I had the sweetest grandmother that you could possibly have. And as a little boy, 
She, I've told you this before. She would pinch my cheek and she would say, you are such an angel, right? Now, my wife, Marie, who's in the nursery today, she had a very similar experience with her grandparents. The most loving, effusive of praise that a grandparent could be. So what do you think that did for us growing up? <laughs> well, I'm an angel. I'm great, right? Uh, grandma says I'm okay, so I'm okay. And then here comes Scripture, Holy Scripture to say, oh, no, no, no. No one is righteous. No, not one. None of us are angels, so to speak. And so here Hosea is having to speak a message to a religious people who are still doing sacrifices, and he's having to convince them, no, 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 no. Like Israel, we are ruined stem to core. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're a ruined mess? Or were you convinced by a pinch on the cheek that you're, you're pretty great? You're not perfect, but you're pretty great. That's where the message of the gospel comes and offends us. It says, no, you are not enough. You cannot please a holy God in and of your own strength. So this week's example um, from the world of music, um, <laughs> that the gospel is true. Uh, there's a particular artist I've been listening to, and he has this line um, that tells me, it convinces me he gets at least the bad news of the gospel. He gets the bad news of the gospel. Don't think he gets the good news of it yet. I hope that he will. But he says this, something inside of me is broken. I hold on to anything that makes me feel free. I'm a lost cause. Baby, don't waste your time on me. I'm so damaged beyond repair. Life has shattered my hopes and my dreams. And some of you know that song, and it's really a profound song. And as I listened to that and thought through that, I was like, you know what? That's what Hosea is trying to get Israel to understand about themselves. That's what Hosea has said of Gomer, that she really is lost in her brokenness of sin, and she will give herself to anyone and everything except for the Lord to make her feel better. That is half of the gospel. That's the bad news of the gospel, that we are ruined and seem to be out of reach and only in despair. But the prophet's point is that there is still the hope of God being at work in the life of His people. Therefore, the Lord has brought discipline. He's brought discipline with a purpose for Israel. In verse 1, He has said, He tears them like a lion does its prey. Last week we talked about that. that is the, that's the visual of judgment. A lion ripping to shreds its prey. And then in verse 5 of chapter 6, he says, The Lord has cut them with His prophets. That is, again, language of judgment. That the words Hosea is speaking is a cutting judgment against the sins of His people. And the Lord has done this. He has sent His prophet for a reason. He's spoken these words that hurt so much for a reason. And it's the purpose of discipline and restoration. And the Lord who did that then, in the 8th century B.C., still does it now. And He does it in the lives of His people. 
He will still allow us to be torn. He will still cut us with His words, but it is always for our good. There are consequences for sin for a reason. And if we belong to the Lord, it's always for our good. Listen to the author of Hebrews from chapter 12, which is a quotation from Proverbs 3. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens after everyone He accepts as a son. So the Lord who disciplined this 8th century is, is people of Israel. He disciplines us now. But we're not crushed by it. Rather, He says He does it for our good that we may share in His holiness. And maybe only parents understand this. Children, it's hard for you to understand this, but parents who were children can remember, discipline can be so confusing to us, right? The Lord does something in our life, and we can hear it like, like a child being told they're on restriction, or that they can't go to somebody's house, or that permissions have been taken away from them. But it's the parent who knows I'm doing this because I love this child. I'm doing this discipline for the good of the child. And that's what Hosea is saying of the Lord, of Yahweh to His covenant people. He has torn them, He has cut them for their good, that they will not continue running from Him, but that they might come and return to Him. And that is the call that Hosea makes in verse 1 of chapter 6. Israel is called to return to the Lord. And incidentally, if, if, you, if, if you pick up on any rhythm in Hosea, one of those I hope you'll feel is that there's this call and response, this back and forth that Hosea has with his people. And really, if you pay attention to it, it's liturgical. And if you pay really close attention to it, you'll see that the same kind of thing happens in our worship service where God calls us to confess our sins, and we respond with a confession of our sin. And then God offers an assurance of pardon. And then we respond with a song of thanksgiving and a song of praise. It's this back and forth dialogical response that God has with His people. And it all begins with Him summoning, calling His people to return. That language of return literally is to go back where you came from. Which in verse 1 of chapter 6 is to go back to the Lord, to go back to being His people, to go back to being in His faithful presence. The, the other word we use throughout the Bible that describes this exact same thing is repentance. This is the language of repentance. To repent from our sin. This is Hosea's invitation for Israel to finally repent and to return to the Lord. Repentance is turning from one thing in order to turn to something else. And Hosea is calling them to turn from that trust in the other nations, in the other kings, the trust in other gods, to turn from those and to return to the Lord who is their one true faithful covenant Lord. That's why Hosea is, is gospel for us. It's good news for us. Because Hosea is not just calling them 
to come and to return. He's calling us to come and to return. In verse 3, Hosea uses the language of pressing on. Let us press on to know the Lord. And remember, context is is key. It was at the end of chapter 5 that he says, When my people earnestly seek me, that is when they seek to really know me, then I will meet them. That's the context that precedes this invitation to repent. And so Hosea literally is calling them and us to return to the Lord and to press on in your living faithfully in knowing the Lord. Israel was called to return, and so are we. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've wandered, each of us, in our own way. That's the message of the Bible. This is not just about 8th century northern Israel. This is about you and me and our households with the continual need to return to the Lord. Acts chapter 3 this morning served as our call to worship. Excuse me, as our call to confession of our sin. Repent and turn to God. Hosea's message to them, repent, return to God. The message of the early church, repent and turn to God. And week after week as we gather, there's a rhythm to what we do. Every week we are being invited to repent and to turn to God. Hosea's message is no different than the rest of the Bible. And then fourthly, The Lord's merciful nature, the covenant Lord in His mercy, will respond to those who confess their sins, to those who earnestly seek Him. He says He will heal. He will receive those who turn to Him. He will revive them. He will renew them. In the language of the New Testament, again, Acts 3.19 We repent and return to the Lord. Why? That times of refreshing will come from the Lord. You see, the Bible's consistent Old Testament knew that those who confess their sins, those who admit that they are rotten from stem to core, the Lord receives that confession. And He responds in His covenant mercy. And He brings healing. He brings renewal. He revives them, and He makes them to be His people again. That is the nature of the God of the Bible. Isaiah, in chapter 43, speaks of that nature, where the Lord says of Himself, I am He who blots out your transgressions for My own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's the covenant mercy and the nature of this God who reveals Himself in the Bible. And then in verse 6 of chapter 6, the most beautiful summary of this covenant Lord who had given Himself for the good of these people. We are told what I like to call the one thing that God desires most. The one thing that God wants most. 
What is that? Let's look at it in the version that I read. It says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, you're familiar probably with that passage, and you may remember that passage is referenced in Hebrews. And it's a little bit confusing for us in English. And I've talked about this word before, but it really is the sum of everything Hosea is presenting in his 14 chapters. And it's that Hebrew word hesed, is how we would transliterate it, how we would say it. Hesed. Chesed is how they would have said it. But that word for us, when it translates to English, we translate it any number of ways. And here, in the version that I've read, it translates it as mercy. For I desire hesed, I desire mercy. The problem for us, or the problem for me when I hear that, is we think, oh, mercy. The Lord desires mercy. So when I'm walking across the parking lot at Walmart around Christmas, and someone is ringing a bell outside the door with a big metal pot, I should do the merciful thing and throw the change in my pocket into the pot. Because that's an act of mercy. Or fill in the blank with some other act of mercy. So I'm doing what Hosea says in verse 6 of chapter 6 when I practice mercies like that. Well, no, that's not actually the idea of what Hosea is saying. Not that there's anything wrong with throwing coins in a pot in the Walmart parking lot at Christmas. But here's the best little summary. I have it as a, as a handout, as a quote on your handout. If you don't have that, listen to this. <clears throat> Hesed is a Hebrew word that translators have struggled to translate to English. Yet it's vital for understanding the way God relates to His people. It occurs some 250 times in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's translated as mercy, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, loyalty. There's no single English word that quite captures it, which is why some translators have opted to use more than one word like steadfast love, loyal love, loving kindness. Now, this word is so meaningful to me because of its constant appearance in the Bible and really because of faithful professors I had who underscored that word as our way of understanding the nature of our God. And so when I speak of that word, I tend to speak of it as some of my professors did, to use many words that sum up the vast meaning of that word, that it is the covenantal loving kindness, the enduring love, the relentless love of a holy God for an unholy people. It is covenant love. It is the very kind of love that Yahweh had showed His people, but that they failed to show Him. They showed Him, what the prophet just said, was a misty love, a short thin, shallow little love that was burned off as soon as things got hot. But the Lord says He showered them and would shower them 
with rain from heaven, the winter rains, no, the spring rains, he says, a drenching, pouring love. That's Hesed. That's the language the Bible uses to describe God's covenant mercy, His enduring, relentless love for His people. A covenantal love that is loyal to the very end. An enduring love that knows no end. And the Lord says, now you go back and read verse 6 again, For I desire hesed, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And you run it through that grid and you understand the Lord is saying this, What I wanted from my people from the very beginning was your loyalty, your fidelity, your love of me. It was never about the sacrificial system. That's, I didn't want you killing animals for the sake of killing animals, burning animals for the sake of burning animals. Great that you go through those motions, but it was your hesed, your loyalty as my covenant people, believing my promises that I've made to you, living according to those promises in your every day of the week, not just for the gathered times of worship. That's what Hosea is speaking to these people. And he says, you've become ruined. You're not characterized by hesed at all. You're rotten apples from stem to core. You need to return to the Lord. You need to come to Him anew. Repent of your sin. Repent of your trust in Baal and the sacred raisin cakes, he would say. And look to the faithful covenant Lord who gave Himself in the person of Jesus, who, by the way, is the personification of Hesed. He's Hesed in a person. He is the loyalty, the faithfulness, the enduring, relentless love that came and bled and died for His people. Do you see why that word is so rich? It summarizes the nature of our God, how He has fully given Himself, not partly as we do, Our love is a misty love, a short-lived love that burns off quickly. But thanks be to God that His love endures forever. It's why in Ephesians 3, in our pastoral prayer, Paul says he prays that we might know this love of God. That you might know how wide, how long, how high, how deep... And that's the imagery of hesed. It's not the same word because it's a different language. But he's talking about it's so big, it's so vast, it's immeasurable. And his prayer is that you might know that. And that you might seek to walk in response to that great love with something more than the misty love that you and I tend to offer him. In closing, let me say this. Last week's sermon, this week's sermon really go together. His flow of thought is the same. Remember that those chapter divisions are our introduction to the text. And so some flow of thought can be broken up. But remember last week was his concern that Israel may have reached the point of no return. That their heart could be so hardened that they would not return to the Lord. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish minister of old, 
gives this warning on that same subject. He says, Christ gives last knocks. When your heart becomes hard and careless, then fear lest Christ may have given a last knock. Now, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, Christ knocks on the door of hearts. But He only knocks so many times. There is a last knock. And so don't presume to have many knocks upon your heart for many years to come. What if today is the last knock? He says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Admit your sin that from stem to core, you and I are ruined messes. That's the message of the prophet. That's the message of the Bible. And when God knocks that truth upon our hearts, we're to repent and to return to Him. There are last knocks. Today could be the last one. And what Hosea said then is said to us now. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He's done so that He might heal us. Let's pray that the Lord would give us strength to press on, to return to Him, or to come to Him for the first time. Let's pray. Lord, would You help us as Your people to forget what is behind, to strain toward what is ahead, that we might press on toward the goal to win the prize for which You have called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank You for words written so long ago that still have absolute application to our lives and to our families. Lord, would You soften the hardness and the stubbornness of our hearts? And would You move with grace and mercy and power to enable us to live for You as we should? And Lord, may we no longer be characterized by misty love. But Lord, may we become more like You. Your character, Your nature, with an enduring love and affection for the One who has redeemed us. And we ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.